Hey everyone, welcome back to Christ of the Cure. Today we are continuing the denomination series. I believe that today's installment will be a little bit shorter, but I'm not entirely sure. So we're just going to go into it, seeing how it goes. As usual, before we begin, firstly, I'm talking about a tradition that is not my own. So double check my work. And if you are part of this tradition, I hope that I did well to represent your position. Point number two, remember that Christ the Cure is subscriber supported and we do need more people on the support team to continue into season five. So prayerfully consider joining the support team at patreon.com forward slash Christ the Cure. The link for that is in the description along with the landing page for this episode. So as with the last installment, we have kind of moved beyond the criteria of Protestant and are continuing with a 19th century movement, the Pentecostals, while I was prepping for them. Some such as the Handbook of Denominations of the United States will label them as Protestant. I've already kind of given you my thoughts on that in the last episode on the Adventists, so I'm not really going to go into that more here. So let's go ahead and jump right into the historical summary. Pentecostalism is a uniquely American Christian movement gone global. Uh, it began in 19th century America but it is also one of the most rapidly growing movements in Christendom, and it is global. In the installment on the Methodists, we spoke about the holiness movement, and many, if not most, Pentecostals will come from that movement, and so you might want to go brush up on that. But if you really remember the dividing line between the holiness movement and what Pentecostalism became was on the doctrine of tongues, but otherwise the movements were similar. Now, two key figures of this movement are Charles Fox Parham and William Seymour, and they are of particular influence within the broader Pentecostal movement, both being born in the 1870s and both passing in the 1920s. The former Parham would come to believe that the gifts of the Holy Spirit were available to all Christians at all times, while most Protestants during this time believed that the miraculous gifts or the apostolic gifts had ceased with the apostolic era. Parham would take a particular interest in the gift of tongues, and he would actually found Bethel Bible College in Kansas. In 1901, Parham would come to interpret the gift of tongues as the initial physical evidence of being infilled by the Holy Spirit. This would become and is a staple in Pentecostal theology, manifesting in two streams— First, the idea that tongues were the physical evidence of conversion and regeneration, and stream two, which is more common in Orthodox Pentecostal circles, that tongues were evidence of the infilling of the Holy Spirit, or called baptism of the Holy Spirit, that is a second blessing subsequent to conversion and regeneration. It is for those who are already saved, it is a second blessing. It is important to recognize these two streams when thinking about Pentecostal churches, because while the former, that is that tongues are a evidence of salvation, is present and is growing, it is not the standard Pentecostal teaching. The standard Pentecostal teaching, again, is that tongues are evidence of baptism of the Holy Spirit or an infilling of the Holy Spirit that comes after conversion and regeneration. This means that you have to recognize that for Pentecostals, baptism of the Holy Spirit is not equated or as tightly knit to regeneration as most other Christians see it. But this is all to say that Parham was particularly influential in making this doctrine a staple in Pentecostal churches. 
Now, as for William Seymour, he was a holiness evangelist who had actually studied at Bethel with Parham, and he would become a leader in the revival that occurred in Los Angeles that is famously dubbed the Azusa Street Revival. When talking about Pentecostal history, this event is central. The event lasts for months with um, accounts of experiences of being baptized in the Holy Spirit, the gift of tongues resulting from that, miraculous healings, and things of that nature. Many individuals actually came to this event from across the country, and this message of latter rain of the apostolic gifts went back with them to their home churches, beginning that spread of Pentecostalism. Pentecostalism got its name from its affinity or claim to affinity with Pentecost in Acts 2. Pentecostalism maintained that the period of Pentecost could not only be experienced today, but should be and often will consider themselves as organization full gospel. They are the full Christian experience partaking in this blessing of the gifts with the gift of tongues playing a crucial role in that theology. And it again, it doesn't hurt to stress that while some Pentecostals hold that the gift of tongues is evidence of conversion and regeneration, most Pentecostals recognize the gift of tongues as subsequent to regeneration, which is a pretty important difference despite disagreements one may have with Pentecostals. During this time, we find this articulation that the baptism of the Holy Spirit empowered believers for better Christian living, better Christian witnessing, and ultimately led to Christians being able to privately pray and spiritual tongues for their personal edification. We'll revisit this element of Pentecostal theology and the distinctives, and so let's move on. Pentecostalism ultimately had a heavy influence on the rise of charismatic theology, which would kind of pop up more in the 60s and 70s that is modified from Pentecostalism, and I'll get to that here in a second. But Pentecostals also had a significant impact on contemporary worship, to which the Handbook of Denominations will go so far as to say, quote, Pentecostals practically invented what is commonly known as contemporary worship using drums and other non-traditional musical instruments. In this way, they are charismatic not only in theology, but they are credited with the rise of dancing in the spirit, falling or being slain in the spirit, and so on and so forth. In the 1930s, Pentecostalism spread significantly among the rural and poor urban America, but by the 60s and 70s, Pentecostal ideas spread to other churches from Roman Catholics to Baptists. But the groups that adopted this charismatic theology usually modified it, especially on the gift of tongues and how Pentecostals articulated that second blessing of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. In the 1980s and 1990s, many Pentecostals in America grew prosperous and gained higher education becoming biblical and theological scholars. However, quote, the media tended to focus on the travails of the Pentecostals whose scandals fascinated the masses. Most of them were not affiliated with any established Pentecostal denomination, but were religious entrepreneurs. That quote also comes from the Handbook of Denominations. Now, as a broad category, Pentecostals can be described as evangelical and orthodox, holding to all the essentials of the Christian faith. However, in emphasizing experience over theology, Pentecostalism can be quite fluid in how it is ultimately expressed, and it has been critiqued for being theologically lax. Some bodies within the movement do not have educational requirements for leadership at all. Instead, it is whether or not a leader has been anointed to lead that leads to ordination. Others, however, do have colleges and seminaries. However, anointing still plays a role, a significant role, in the ordination of leadership. 
If we're talking divergences a little bit early, several movements came from Pentecostalism, some adopting Wesley's idea of entire sanctification and moving more into a Christian perfection like the holiness churches, but others came to deny the Trinity altogether by holding to neo-modalism expressed as Jesus-onlyism or oneness theology. Formally, we know them as oneness Pentecostals, but because of their deviation from orthodoxy, they go beyond our concerns here. A significant modern and controversial movement that also has its roots in Pentecostalism is known as the New Apostolic Reformation, but this too goes beyond our scope. It is worth stating that these are deviations, not necessarily indicative of traditional Pentecostalism. Many Pentecostals try to push back against the theological fluidity or the modalistic strains of Pentecostal theology by specifically calling themselves Reformed, Orthodox, or Trinitarian Pentecostals. While Oneness Pentecostals are a large group, larger than Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons combined, traditional Pentecostals still outnumber them and are a significant chunk of modern Christendom's population. Not only this, but the movement has been known for its rapid expansion, especially in Asia and Latin America, but also it's become a massive movement in Korea, where the largest church in the world is a Pentecostal congregation in Seoul. And when prepping for this, I couldn't help but get curious about that, so I looked it up. And in 1993, the church had more than 700,000 members. It's quite interesting. It is called Udio Full Gospel Church. Of course, my pronunciation there is probably not the best. Anyway, moving on from there, nowadays one can find Pentecostal groups who either emphasize the gifts as the traditional Pentecostals do, and then there's also those who just don't. The latter usually move away from tongues as being the manifestation of being baptized in the Holy Spirit, while not throwing out the gifts altogether for some Christians. What I mean is that while traditional Pentecostals will say, yes, the gift of the tongues is evidence of baptism of the Holy Spirit, some Pentecostals have moved away from that, saying, no, not everyone will manifest the gift of tongues, and they'll even point out the fact that most do not. And a concern is, and which is also addressed in our Assemblies of God discussion below, that people would manufacture the gift in order to feel complete as a Christian. So there's a whole discussion on that and the concerns that led to um, moving away from that traditional articulation. Now, in terms of progressive and conservative ideology in the Pentecostal churches, there is no formal Pentecostal body that allows for same-sex marriage or the ordination of those within that community. While there may be some independent groups that allow for that, um, all the formal documentation of formal Pentecostal groups doesn't allow for that, so they can never really join. However, Pentecostals have allowed for the ordination of women to various levels of authority with a variety of women pastors. In fact, Pentecostalism has a pretty deep history of women in leadership and also one of their groups even being founded by a woman. There are a number of Pentecostal groups, such as the Apostolic Faith Church, the Apostolic Faith Mission Church, the Fire Baptized Holiness Church, and so on and so forth. However, for this installment, I'm going to focus and use the Assemblies of God as the reference point for the remainder of this installment. The Assemblies of God, or AG, was formed in an emphasis on doctrinal unity and missionary endeavors. The founding meeting was actually specifically to respond to the rise of non-Trinitarian or modalist Pentecostals, that is, the oneness Pentecostals. 
The Handbook of Denominations will say, quote, over the centuries since its founding, the AG has spread worldwide and has become one of the largest, if not the largest, Pentecostal denominations in the United States. As of 2015, it claimed to have 65 million adherents in the world. About 20 million are in Brazil alone. Many scholars of Pentecostalism consider the AG the gold standard of Pentecostalism as it has taken leadership in the American evangelical community, being the largest denomination in the National Association of Evangelicals, also NAE. In other words, the Assemblies of God is an exceptional model of traditional Pentecostalism and is one of the largest, if not the largest, Pentecostal denomination in the States. In terms of sources of authority, the AG stresses the infallibility and inspiration of Scripture. Like with the other denominational groups, the AG does hold to Sola Scriptura with other documents helping to guide the AG overall in confession and in practice. Actually, I was pretty impressed at ag.org. One can actually find a list of statements and papers on various controversial issues that have been adopted by the church's presbytery. I say I was impressed because as I've gone through the denomination series, I've learned how hard it is to kind of learn about some denominations, and the AG made it pretty easy. Looking at polity or church government, the AG's structure is pretty interesting. It's a mix of Presbyterianism and Congregationalism. When it comes to the local congregations, they are independent in their conduct. In addition to promoting home missions, district officers serve as pastoral ministers to all of the congregations, so there are areas broken up into districts. Each district has a district presbytery that reviews and suggests that pastors be credentialed. Every ordained minister, as well as lay delegates from nearby churches, make up what is called the General Council. The General Council is a biannual gathering, and it establishes theological guidelines, chooses general offices, and plans for the growth and development of the church. Like I said, if you go to ag.org, you can actually see that list of documents that that Presbytery has been producing over the years, uh, ranging from a number of different years on different topics. That is basically the AG's official stance on those topics and are expected to be agreed upon if you are to join the AG. That moves us into the AG's four classifications for local churches in relation to the Assemblies of God at large, the organization. So firstly, you have the General Council Affiliated Churches, which are churches certified to be part of the General Council. This group is adopted based on their acceptance of the tenets of faith, holding to membership standards and having a minimum of 20 members, including qualified members of leadership. This group is formally part of the AG and has the right of self-government and is subordinate to the General Council in terms of doctrine and polity. The second group are District Council-affiliated churches who are under the supervision of the AG's district and network, but have not met and attained rights to the General Council affiliation or self-governance. Third, the third group of churches are those who are affiliated with a parent church and under the supervision of that church, but are not affiliated formally with the AG at large, but rather they are affiliated as an extension of their parent. The last group is group four, and they are cooperating assemblies, which are those that agree with the AG statement of faith and decide to enter into a cooperative status, but they are not officially affiliated with the AG, but can become such. And the same can be said regarding their status with the districts. So as I mentioned, this is a weird mix of Presbyterian and Congregationalism, and it does have some intricate moving bits to it. Whenever it comes to sacraments or ordinances, the AG prefers the term ordinances, as most Pentecostals do, and they hold that baptism is to be administered via immersion, and it is for those who repent and believe in Christ, thus excluding infants. There is a more elaboration on this topic, and so I'll just move on from there. 
For the supper, the elements and ordinances are the symbols expressing or sharing the divine nature of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to 2 Peter 1.4, a memorial of his suffering and death, according to 1 Corinthians 11.26, and a prophecy of his second coming, according to 1 Corinthians 11.26, and it is enjoyed on all believers until he come. The supper is, from what I have ascertained in Pentecostal churches, pure memorialism. And just to clarify, whenever I said that there wasn't more elaborated on baptism, this wasn't to say that they didn't have a more robust articulation of what baptism signifies, but really there was nothing unique to it compared to what we talked about, being buried with Christ, being raised in new life. What I meant was whether or not they viewed it as like a means of grace or just a symbol um, and where they fall in that spectrum. When it comes to Pentecostal distinctives and emphasis, many distinctives have already been expressed, right? The most obvious distinctive and emphasis is that Pentecostals and the AG are charismatic. While you do have charismatics in different denominational circles, they are known as charismatics. Now, when I say that, I mean that in kind of every sense of the word, but primarily on the gifts of the spirit, because they are charismatic in their contemporary worship service. Formerly, they are also Arminian with an official statement of their position on the reformed and Calvinistic thought from their presbytery on that same um, AG webpage that again, I'll have all this stuff linked in the description per usual. Now I, I was thinking about it just now. I mentioned earlier reformed Pentecostals. And usually whenever I talk to reformed Pentecostals, they are Pentecostals who are um, pushing back against theological lacks, or they're pushing back against uh, behavioral lacks and how gifts are operated, things of that nature. However, I have met a very select few uh, people who say that they're Reformed Pentecostals and that they're Calvinistic Pentecostals. But as far as I can tell, that is not normal or the norm. And so I think I think what is said about the AG here is a safe assumption to say for most Pentecostals, that is that they are Arminian or non-Calvinist. And that makes sense because they came from Wesleyanism through the holiness movement, right? So that shouldn't be too surprising. Most distinctive of Pentecostals, however, is their belief of the baptism of the Holy Spirit or even their articulation of spirit baptism or the baptism of the Holy Spirit and, of course, tongues, which follows from it. Their statement of belief says this, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, all believers are entitled to and should ardently expect and earnestly seek the promise of the Father, that is the baptism of the Holy Spirit and fire according to the command of our Lord Jesus Christ. This was the normal experience of all in the early Christian church. With it comes the endowment of power for life and service, the bestowment of the gifts and their uses in the work of the ministry. This experience is distinct and subsequent to the experience of the new birth. With the baptism in the Holy Spirit comes such experiences as an overflowing fullness of the Spirit, a deepened reverence for God, an intensified consecration to God and dedication to His work, and a more active love for Christ and His Word and for the lost. On the initial physical evidence of baptism in the Holy Spirit, the baptism of believers in the Holy Spirit is witnessed by the initial physical sign of speaking with other tongues as the Spirit of God gives them utterance. The speaking in tongues in this instance is the same in essence as the gift of tongues, but is different in its purpose and use. They do have a longer form article on the subject, and it states that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is theologically and experientially distinguished from and again subsequent to the new birth, accompanied by tongues and distinct in its purpose from the work of regeneration. According to this article, the baptism of the Holy Spirit opens one up to receive the full range of spiritual gifts, aids in righteous living, and gives power to witness. 
The document also speaks to those who have not been baptized in the Holy Spirit, saying that all believers are candidates for this and that the Spirit already indwells all believers. Quote, the Holy Spirit is not external to a believer, not yet baptized in the Spirit. Spirit baptism is an overwhelming experience of the already indwelling Spirit. End quote. The baptism of the Spirit is a gift and is not earned. Quote, God will not permit sincere seekers to have a counterfeit experience. End quote. One must be open and expectant, be in prayer and praise, and ultimately it is God's timing of when it occurs. So the highlight here is that for Pentecostals, the regenerate believer does have the Holy Spirit indwelling. However, this baptism of the Holy Spirit is an overflowing and a second blessing and more filling of the Holy Spirit in that believer's life. And that is a pretty important qualification when we're talking about Pentecostals and trying to understand Pentecostal theology. Beyond this, additional Pentecostal distinctives can be found in their formal adherence to conservative positions regarding homosexuality. Given the wide range of groups that have kind of gone into a more progressive swing, this is a distinctive in that they have formally have upheld the conservative values. However, they have been critiqued on their positions regarding women. One more distinctive that is worth pointing out, which has been pointed out in this episode and in other discussions on Pentecostalism, is that it is indeed the fastest growing and exceptionally far-reaching movement in Christendom, um, and that is worthy of note. So that concludes our episode on Pentecostalism. Next week, I believe we are talking about the Restoration Movement, and then after that, we will move into our miscellaneous denominations before wrapping up the series and moving on to the next thing. So I hope this was helpful for you. I hope it gave you a point of reference to go again, look up this denomination if you're wanting to look deeper into them. And again, I will link all of these citations and articles and pages in the description. And then by the end of the series, I do hope to have what I'm labeling as a guide to the denomination series where I kind of outline who I've talked to and give all the resources in one document. And this document is really inspired by the questions I've been getting from some individuals where they'll ask about a particular group like, hey, have you talked about the Presbyterians? Yeah, I talked about them in the Reformation one. Or did you talk about the Episcopalians? Yes, I talked about them in the Anglican one. So this is going to outline the groups that are talked about in each section because people may not know that Episcopalians are Anglicans and Presbyterians are part of the Reformed. So that document will be kind of a tool to easily navigate the series and we'll have the relevant links um, all put together. And then if you are a patron, you can expect full notes on this series. I'm not sure how many pages it's going to be. It's going to be a good chunk, but I'm going to get that all formatted for you in an EPUB or a PDF. So if you are a patron, you can expect that um, either a week or two, ideally after I wrap up the series or maybe even before since you are getting early episodes as patrons. So that's it for this episode. God bless you all and have a wonderful, wonderful weekend. <laughs>